I think some of the most significant things happen in history when you get the right people in the right place at the right time. When you talk about people who have been under this oppression all of their ancestors' lives and under their lives, uh, those are the right people to make the change. And the fact that they have decided to put into leadership a group of people who have dedicated their lives to revolutionary change says a lot for why we're about to transform this situation in Jackson in order to change the world. Welcome to the fourth episode of How We Breathe. I'm Jonathan Stith, National Organizer for BOLD, working alongside the amazing organizers who form part of the BOLD Network. Well, fam, we've reached the last episode in the first season here on How We Breathe. It's been so rewarding to hear from the phenomenal organizers who have made this season so deeply impactful thus far. This episode is very special to me because we're headed to Jackson, Mississippi, the heart of my political home. Today, we're speaking with Rukia Lumumba, my friend and fellow organizer coming out of the Malcolm X grassroots movement. This sister wakes up at 8 a.m. in the morning to break bread with me and to share her passion for the work. Rukia has movement legacies in her blood. She is the daughter of the late Chokwe Lumumba, a radical attorney and revolutionary Black nationalist drawing from the lineage of Queen Mother Alden Moore, Malcolm X, and Robert and Mabel Williams. Their family's dedication to the people of Jackson runs across generations, starting with her father, who served as city council member and as mayor, as well as her brother, Antar, who is currently in his second term as mayor of Jackson. After the elder Lamuma transitioned in 2014, Rukia returned home to pick up her father's work with the Jackson People's Assembly. Let's get into it. So, good morning. <laughs> um, the land that I am on is land that comes from the Choctaw people and the Natchez people, indigenous people to this land that was deeply, deeply nourished by the blood of many of our ancestors, African descendants who were enslaved here in Mississippi. And it is land currently where my house sits. It is land that has been reclaimed by Black people to really create a community that feels safe, that feels welcoming to all of our people and to all people, that feels as a place where we can grow our food, our children, our lives, you know? Um, and so I'm, I'm on a very special land. I'm on very special land. Jackson is a city that is 86, 88% Black with a growing Central American immigrant population, a small West African immigrant population, a significant Southeast Asian immigrant population. But it's one in which a lot of divestment has happened from the state and from white flight. What we're trying to do is reinvest in our ability to recover the land because it has definitely been abandoned in many ways. 
and create more self-determined economies and spaces for our community to actually thrive. Rukia's North Star is the return to this land, keeping her eyes set on the path from bondage to freedom. It's a path she's inherited. Her father worked to build the Republic of New Africa in the seat of white power, Jackson, Mississippi. His work laid the foundation for the New African People's Organization and the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, and he later helped launch the Jackson People's Assembly the predecessor to Rukia's organization, the People's Advocacy Institute. Both his work and hers are grounded in the three principles of self-defense, self-determination, and self-respect for Black people. This all shapes how Rukia sees the world and her place in it. I come from Shokwe Lumumba and Nubia Lumumba, two brave souls who left this earth way too soon, but had committed themselves to Black liberation and liberation meaning the wellness of our people. To live really safely in any community that they were in and have the right to actually dictate how their lives could be lived. My father comes from Detroit. My brothers and I were also born in Detroit. My father's family actually comes from Alabama. So we actually have roots in Alabama. We have family land in Alabama where we shared land on a reservation with indigenous people to Alabama. We made the journey from Alabama. My grandmother, as she tells her story, she and her mother were activists since Forever. I don't know any time where I didn't know them to be activists. My grandmother organizing Black people in the Catholic Church to create their own Black Catholic associations. Her mother, my great-grandmother, Donnie Finley, constantly working as a healer to really guide our people towards our wellness outside of the oppression that they were speaking, that they were experiencing. The first time that I can clearly remember knowing that I wanted to use the law as a conductor or a force that would help me envision another way of creating that safety was when my father was representing Matulu Shakur, who is one of our dear political prisoners, and Marilyn Buck. She was represented by the amazing Sophia Elijah, who um, is one of our living great lawyers right now. Watching those trials, watching the trial of Matulu Shakur and Marilyn Buck as they were co-defendants, I was in the second grade. I could remember the redness and the anger of the judge's face when referring to them. I could remember the words of disgust that would come out of his mouth. I remember being on the train with my father or being in certain places with my father and people would spit at him because they would recognize him from the TV for representing these so-called terrorists. They were doing work that was transformative and they were doing it in opposition to the government, which was not supporting people through addiction, that was not supporting people through housing and creating the safe spaces and the rights that we needed as Black people and as people in general to live good, happy, healthy lives. 
And so sitting in that courtroom, I knew if this white man with this red face can sit up here and dictate the remainder of these beloved people's lives, I know I can do something better. The next time that I had that revelation was my last year of high school going into my first year of college. I had three friends who were starting their first year of life sentences as juveniles without the possibility of parole. One was convicted of self-defense. One was convicted of literally just trying to live that American dream of getting money, of selling drugs to, to live that American dream, right? And then the third was literally just an innocent kid in the wrong place at the wrong time. Knowing that they were about to spend literally the rest of their lives behind bars at 15, 16, and 17. While I was entering my first year of college, I knew that there had to be another way. There had to be another system that actually cared about the restoration of people's lives, that cared about healing, that cared about accountability and not punishment. Rukia's work reveals the continuity of struggle that unites the ideas of Black leaders like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, who both shared a vision of Black organizing for dignity. My father used to talk about when Emmett Till was killed and his mother showed them the images of Emmett Till, him and his seven brothers and sisters. He said, well, how could somebody do that? And she said, well, there are a lot of sick people in this world and racism is a sickness. That stuck with him. So when Martin Luther King died, he said, you know, Martin brought me into the movement, but Malcolm kept me there and made me a leader. It was through his work with the Republic of New Africa that he really began to understand this deeper need for not just laws that protected Black people from state violence, but the actual opportunity to dictate what those laws were, to create those laws, and to have a choice around how we are governed, to engage in what we call self-governance. It was through this process with the Republic of New Africa that he began to envision a time, a journey down South where we would reclaim land that our ancestors had toiled. In meeting my mother, who comes from D.C., Washington, D.C., Southeast, Anacostia, you know, grew up in a house right there with 14 other folks, a small little three-bedroom house. You know, for her, her revolutionary act was about building family and building community as a family. This path to where we are today, we have to do that in a way that's transformative. That's just not about replicating the systems that already exist. Watching the struggle against apartheid in South Africa really gave me inspiration to know that even as a young person, that I could stand up and I could actually fight long-term. It connected a global lens. And then going over there to study. After the fall of apartheid formally in South Africa, having the opportunity to go there and learn and to be able to see ahead, to have the foresight to say, ooh, y'all might be headed down the same wrong road we were headed down after the civil rights movement, after the end of Jim Crow. 
to be able to, to correlate those things and be able to see really opened me up to, to, to say, oh, I got to go deeper. I got to start dreaming like Harriet did. When Harriet knew that one day we could be free out of bondage of slavery, I said, I got to really start thinking. I mean, literally, it, it, it really made me say, like, none of these systems of governance that I've been studying in school equal what we need. Locally, I work with the People's Advocacy Institute and, and engage in these people's assemblies for um, the Jackson People's Assembly to really merge transformative justice and community-led governance into one body, right? Through the Movement for Black Lives, I have the, the beautiful opportunity to serve as a co-director of the Electoral Justice Project. These big ideas, we have actual, real, practical actions that we have taken to realize them. So from bailing people out who are serving life sentences in prisons to literally creating alternative public safety measures that are community-led and community-driven and don't rely on police, to literally creating alternative economies for young people so that we can begin to experiment with what does it look like to not rely on an oppressive capitalistic system, to organizing and creating space for community members, literally to not only make small decisions about what a park looks like in their neighborhood, but to making large decisions around what their city budget, where dollars go, and also to what programs are being developed, what policies are being done, like literally engaging in a co-governance process. We're really taking action. We're, we're doing that work. And all of that work has to include healing. It has to include space for people to learn to be and act um, with each other differently. And I think that's the work that Bold is the expert at teaching us how to do. Transformation is at the heart of Rukia's work. And yet the deep work of personal transformation was real as well. Participating in Bold's training for directors in 2016 gave her a pause. Time she needed to jumpstart her own personal growth. I walked into Bold doubting myself. I walked into Bold having just lost my father. Walked in having still not had the opportunity to grieve the death of my mother. You know, being a director of alternative programs in a predominantly white male-led space, where oftentimes I was the only Black person in the room, but yet still moving and organizing in my personal life as a member of very Black, very radical spaces like the Malcolm X grassroots movement. So Bold gave me the tools I needed to navigate several spaces and to really do the healing that I needed to do for my own personal self, my personal life, so that I could be my better, better work self. But I think the tools that I gained from the Bold experience um, really have helped me to navigate that journey, to like to be on that journey in a way that feels as if I am still purpose driven, that I am still fulfilling my goals and that I am not scattered and all over the place, but that I am grounded and I have a grounding by other people. And it's important for me, for my team, you know, to get together and for us to laugh together, to go out together, to be outside of the work together, right? Because it's all work. Whenever I connect with Rukia, we often greet each other with free the land. The story of this battle cry always moves me. 
it connects everything for me. The story of how we got to say free to land. Free to land is our battle cry for what many would call the Black Liberation Movement. And it started, you know, back in 1971 after students at Jackson State had been gunned down by local all-white police department in Jackson, Mississippi. And shortly thereafter, a few months after that, the Republic of New Africa had purchased land between Edward and Bolton, Mississippi. This land really began to realize their idea of creating a community that they had governance over, that they could create a space where people wouldn't be worried about police violence. You know, this would be their own private land. They wouldn't have to worry about that. We wouldn't have to worry about all the many ways that um, state violence impacts our lives and they could create a healthy community. In 1971, the Republic of New Africa decided to have a land celebration day because we had purchased land and we were going out there to celebrate the fact that we had land. And that news got out not only around Mississippi, but around the world. About 500 of them, men, women, children, had journeyed down to the land. And as they were approaching the land, large caravan of folks, as they were approaching the land, they were met by state troopers by the same Jackson Police Department and their chief who had just gunned down the Jackson State students months ago. Members of the CIA were there and of the FBI. And so white folks put it together like this. Excuse me, language. Niggas come in here talking about they're going to build a nation and they're going to have a land celebration in Mississippi. Ain't going to happen. The governor said it ain't going to happen. The attorney general said it wasn't going to happen. The Ku Klux Klan said it wasn't going to happen. The mayor of Jackson said it wasn't going to happen. Uh, and so all of these people said it wasn't going to happen. And as we were actually literally riding to the land celebration in March of 1971, we started hearing that it wasn't going to happen or that they were going to do something to us if we did it. And so we came on anyway. All right. And so we arrived here. And I remember out there on Lynch Street, Lynch and Dalton, that corner has been famous for a lot of different things, but Lynch and Dalton Street. We gathered and people were arriving and the press came up and they said, well, these folks said, they ain't serious. Y'all ain't going to have no land celebration here. And Brother Mari said, look, we come in for peace, but we come prepared. That's what he said, right? And we did come in peace and we did come prepared. There was a barricade. These folks had created a barricade. And so as my father, who at the time was um, responsible for leading that security detail that day, he tells the story and he says, you know, I got out of the car and me and my comrade walked up to the police chief who was leading the efforts. And police chief immediately said, ain't going to be no land celebration day here. But right down the road, they had set up a roadblock, the sheriff, old Goon Jones. Boom Jones was the same guy who shot up the Jackson State students back in May. So he was a killer. He was a killer. No question about it. This was the heaviest moment in most of our young lives. See, talking that stuff is interesting, right? That's easy way. You know what I'm saying? Right? You can talk it all you want. You can be the greatest theoretician in the world. You read all the books. But when you're out there facing Boom Jones, then you got a slightly different situation, right? You know, he looked back at the caravan of folks and he remembers the feeling of fear in his gut, right? But he looked back at the police 
chief and said, well, it's not going to be no turning the other cheek. Not today. And the police chief looked back at all the people behind him, right? And my father says that (laughs) they were strong revolutionaries drawn back to prayer, right? That, you know, he can remember deeply beginning just to pray. And he says when he turned back to look at that barricade of all of these state-sanctioned violence producers, (laughs) all these law enforcement agencies. We decided we'd keep going. We kept headed toward the robot, and we weren't going to be stopped. He said it was like the Red Sea. Just like the Red Sea, that dog on robot opened up. And so we rolled through that roadblock, and we went to that land, and that's where you get your slogan, free the land, right? That is when people started to say, free the land. It was on that day that the battle cry was born. Free the land, free the land, free the land. Because for them, it was freeing of life. They had made it past this fear, this threat, and they had reached something that they was on where they were going to build this holistic community. And so to this day, we say free the land. And if there's nothing, if you can't find the connection of transforming lives and transformative justice with governance and movement out of that story, then I got a whole lot more work to do. (laughs) That's a wrap. We thank Rukia for her generosity and honesty, for her story and for sharing her legacy. Her lineage and stories are powerful parables for transformation. It gave me so much joy to speak with each of the powerful leaders who we featured in this first season of How We Breathe. We hope you enjoyed listening and that we'll find you back here when we launch season two in the spring. Till then, be well and black love. This podcast is a quarterly offering by Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity creating powerful spaces where organizers gather to experience embodied leadership, deeper relationships, resilience, and Black joy. You can find us on Instagram at WeBreatheBold. If you enjoy the show, make sure to leave us a comment and review. How We Breathe is written and produced by Niasha Lang and edited and produced by Eddie Hemphill.